my spidey senses tingling. He's the host that commands us to release at the same time. He's all two socks and baby mocks. He's slim. And this is the Paper Keg Podcast, episode 153. Welcome to the Paper Keg Podcast, uh, where we talk about comic books, Three Fathers. You know, we have little time to ourselves. And what time we do have, we read and talk about it. And we do a book club to close out the show. Read the same book, and we talk about it. Fury Max. So this is a special show. The entire episode will be devoted to Garth Ennis and Goran Parlov, Lilo Ridge, Fury Max. Uh, but let's talk about the hosts that we have with us. He don't adjust your sets if you're watching this on YouTube. Uh, he's an unpublished writer. Uh, that's about all he's got going for him right now. He, I think he's a father. He's married. Who knows? He drinks what's going uh, chai on. tea. Fact. Chai tea. Uh, Jonesy, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I say that every week, but this week in particular, I've been introduced to one of my top ten favorite comics of all time. Wow. <laughs> Opinion spoilers. Good My heavens. We're just right getting right mm-hmm. into it. Why not, right? It's a rocket keg episode. I'm feeling the rocket keg magic. I'm not sure. The sun classes might come out. I just don't oh know. Oh, my gosh. You just uh, went right to the main which... event. God, I mean, we haven't even gotten through the pre, pre-main pre event card, the undercard. <laughs> uh, wearing some kind of towel apparatus over his shoulders, I presume to keep his shoulders warm in that basement of his. He's a father. He is one of the most popular people I know on Twitter. Uh, probably the most popular person I ever met on Facebook. <laughs> so that's the number one thing he's got going for him. Dale underscore A, VP of merch of Paper Keg. Welcome to the show. Yeah, it's... um. You know, I just got a sleep shirt on right now, so it's just a little chilly in my basement. Above average temperature upstairs, but down here, it's uh, it's warranting a shawl-type apparatus. Hence, the shawl. I mean, it looks, it looks like an electric blanket of some kind that you're using. It doesn't look safe. I'm not even sure those are legal in South Jersey. Especially when I'm just prone to passing out under the influence while keeping it plugged in, waking up at three in the morning and hobbling upstairs. We've all heard the stories. and sweat. You know, when you try to ether, ether your children and you fail and you just go into your basement and just drink yourself to sleep. 
while playing Skyrim, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. I just I lay the rag, <laughs> just a chloroform on my soaked. <laughs> I lay the soaked rag right on my basement couch, and I plank it, and I just I just let it take me right away. Good for you. Maybe put on an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm. I can't get through. Sleep. Can we talk Sleeping about like um, one of the highlights? That I can remember recently, you were watching SummerSlam 1991 oh, man. on the WWE Network. Tell us a little bit about that experience, if you can, if you, in the in the few minutes we have before the book club starts. You know, I was ready to go to bed, but if anything that I knew, I knew Slim wasn't going to bed. No, not after the show, a, not after Sunday a podcast edit. It. Yeah. So you know what he does? He multitasks. He fires up the WWE Network and edits the podcast at the same GD time. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to get into this. I'm going to get into something maybe I've seen in 1991. Maybe I haven't seen it. And I mm-hmm. I remember bits and pieces of it, but it was glorious. Yes. We started with a, uh, a triple tag match with a British Bulldog, Dragon, of Ricky all people. Steamboat? Not Ricky. Not, no, no. Only Dragon. Different Dragon. Okay. Only Dragon here. It, his m- name may be Ricky, but <laughs> you will only know him as what, from his puppeteer outfit. It looks like a, a fake dragon in a fifth grade play. <laughs> and uh, I forget, frankly, I forget who the third was. Was it the Bushwhackers? Bushwhackers, no, went up against the natural disasters. Oh, earthquake, earthquake and typhoon. typhoon. Yeah. Of course. And uh, Bret Hart against the Mr. Perfect, you know, mm-hmm. for that Intercontinental title. Yeah. Once Brett got him in that sharpshooter, I mean, uh, old Stu and uh, Mary Hart, Helen Hart, they were up there weeping their little eyes out. Yeah. Because their son just won the belt. Good for them. <laughs> I mean, and then, I don't know if, this was all live back in the day, so it was it was actually incredible because they kept panning over to this this old couple watching their son you know, fight Mr. Perfect. So it was, it was a, it was a knockout drag out match. And then they finally get to interview Stu. He gets to say one word and then the, the, uh, the commentator cuts him off and has to get right back to the action. Oh my. It was crazy. Well, Stu Hart getting his line. That's time in the sun. It's like my favorite pastime. 2 a.m. WWE network. Jonesy, what are you doing at 2 a.m. Mm. after we record? Oh, sleeping. Yeah, okay, I hook, your, I hook up myself to my on. iron lung, and then, uh, you know, the support staff uh, pours the boiling water into the, the chamber. And if anyone they, wants to envision what Gen Z looks like sleeping, you remember that suit that Tony Stark made in the first Iron Man? That's that it cave? right there. That's it. That's essentially what Gen Z sleeps in. You know, I got to watch out. Sometimes the flamethrower goes off in the middle of the night. I don't even mm. know what happens. Right before he steps into it, he goes, I made a few upgrades, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Oh, uh, God. Jonesy loves monger. What a show. Jonesy, you are a monger. That Thank is a you. fact. Thank you. Uh, we have a rare episode, a Rucka Keg episode mm-hmm. trademark, mm-hmm. where the whole show is just one book. We devote the entirety of the show, with the exception of letters and a miscellaneous segment that we don't talk about that happens after the show. Uh, Fury Max. Mm. Garth Ennis. Say it again. Fury Max. Mm. Goran Parlov. 
uh, who who should be at the top of everyone's list of artists of uh, the 21st century. Lilo Ridge colors. Lee. Lee. Get at me, Lee. Classic Lee. And uh, so if you're unfamiliar with what the Max line is for Marvel, you can pretty much just tell whatever story you want and it doesn't have to have superheroes in it. So in this case, in this Max universe, Fury, there's no shield. This is more of like a real, it's like an ultimate universe story, but maybe uh, exceptionally better done. Uh, so there's no shield. He's just in the CIA, just a regular dude. And, um, you know, you don't have to worry about Spider-Man swinging in. This is the real deal. And that's what the Max line is with Garth. What more, what more can you ask for? Oh, my God. Punisher Born. We might have to do that as a book club. <laughs> Good heavens. Oh, my God. Garth. Garth Keg. <laughs> if we can. So this is 13 issues. And we're going to probably break it into the different arcs of that book. All take place in different decades of Nick Fury's life. And um, so the first one was Indochina. Jonesy, what is what is this Fury Max book? Are you guys sitting down? Oh, I can see you, so I know you are. Nick Fury is a great war hero from World War II. But here's the problem, folks. A-bombs exist now. So the Cold War is now the theater of Nick's next adventures. So he joins the CIA with the express interest of going back in the field and staying in battle. And this tale that starts in Indochina weaves him through the lives of three other people that will become key players uh, throughout the following decades of Nick's life in both deciding where he goes and what he does and ultimately what happens to the military that he loves and the country he honors. And these three characters are uh, Shirley DeFabrio, who is a bright and bold and strong female counterpoint to Nick, somebody that can truly be his equal. Uh, the Senator McCuskey, who affectionately, maybe not affectionately, is called Pug. He's kind of a string puller who supports the CIA and kind of gives them direction towards American interests. And Nick Fury's new right-hand man, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> George Hatherley, who's like the rookie who looks up to the heroes from World War II but still wants to believe in the American way. And in Indochina, Nick is kind of showing George the ropes while still developing relationships with uh, Shirley and Pug. And during that time, um, George is such a green um, soldier and new to the intelligence community that he will not face an ex-Nazi who is helping uh, the essentially the agency help take control of the French-occupied Indochina. So George decides he's going to sneak away in the middle of the night and go take this Nazi out because Nazis are evil, and that's the right thing to do. So Nick is forced to chase after him to save his life. The camp is attacked, and we're introduced to the opposing sides, Nick Fury, if you will, 
Giep, who was a colonel for the, which will eventually become the Viet Cong. How amazing, obviously, just want to get out of the way, Book of 2013, Fury oh, Max. Certainly. You're going to put it, put it right out Without there. a doubt. Um, this first arc, so there's like, the book is broken up into three issue arcs in different decades. So this first one is in the, 50s. Um, the fifties, late fifties and you, and Nick Fury, like I said, there's no shield. He's just a tough as nails, you know, sexy, bad a certainly. And he, he meets this Hatherly cat who is joining up with him and they're getting called in thanks to pug. Who's kind of orchestrating all this. And they get sent into this Indochina to see if, you know, maybe they need to help the French, you know, with munitions and see what the deal is over there, see if they can contain the rebels. And, I mean, the idea of, like, Garth Ennis writing a a war story, I mean, this is, like, his thing. Like, this is a guy that, like, reads, you know, war books. If he's not writing a comic, he's reading the history of war, various wars. He knows he could be, like, a historian at this point. And you can see that in this book. All the information in this book, you know, checks out, fact check, everything. And the idea of, like, Fury going on these little CIA-sponsored missions, kind of, he should be a war hero, but he's getting sent into these weird kind of menial tasks for the CIA that, you know, why is Fury doing these little odd jobs? But this first one, they get sent into make sure that everyone everything checks out with this base that's almost overran and when they get there they see this former german soldier i mean this is the 50s so world war 2 isn't that far behind and and like you said jonesy hatherley gets there and they see that the guy that is kind of keeping this base together for the french is a nazi soldier and he's the only reason why it's still standing at this point which is crazy for Hatherley to to see when he first gets there. Yeah, Nick is the uh, guy to kind of break it to Hatherley. He's like, this is the way the world works now. Uh, We've had this bigger threat looming in Russia ever since the war, and that was always going to be the case. And, uh, you know, it's not cut and dry. It's not good and evil. And you're going to learn very quick that, you know, these are the kind of stuff, this is the kind of stuff that, you have to kind of just suck it up and deal with if you want to live or if you want to, you know, in support of your country, which is, you know, a little um, amoral at times. And this is the very beginning of it. And he gets into how he, uh, you know, when he was in World War II, it was good and evil and cut and dry, but then he kind of starts becoming, I don't know, repulsed by his government or... But he, but he loves war. He loves being in it. Yeah, one of the prevailing themes of the entire book, which really uh, gets its impetus here, is that the American soldier has gone from this national view of being heroic and being basically the saviors of World War II and something to be admired. And Nick Fury really helps takes the, takes the first steps to sullying that and kind of making them not a force for heroism, 
but a force for private interests and private goals and, you know, America over the rest of the world instead of America being the helping hand. And Nick at this point is too blinded by his love of the mission, the front lines to kind of see what he started. And when Giap kind of introduces you to the fact that Indochina doesn't exist and this is Vietnam, you right. that's like the perfect uh, you know, note, the perfect bell note, you know, saying that you've started something, you're going down the wrong path, and this is the first step down that path. And Nick has to walk it with his broken Tommy gun. How great was that uh Giap the the guy that's running the show over there in Vietnam was actually kind of hiding and biding his time in this little French oh, yeah. base. That was awesome. He was pretending that he was just a grunt the whole time. So this is revealed when Hatherley goes, he goes back after they, they're done their report, you know, they're about to file it and say if this is, they need more money over there. But Hatherley goes back to beat the crap out of the Nazi because he, he couldn't live with himself just not not doing something about it. And then there's an attack on the base while they're all there except for Hatherley, Fury is about to be choppered out, but he sends Hatherley in his place, so Fury is stuck there while this attack happens. And then Giap reveals himself when pretty much everyone is dead except Fury. How about the speech that Giap reveals himself to be like this intellect character? Not only was he just hiding the whole time, but he he's like well-spoken, he's very intelligent, and what he says you know, makes sense almost to Fury. Yeah, it it's because Gap is not only like a brilliant tactician, which is obviously shown because he gets the drop on everybody and turns the tables almost instantly, but he also appeals to Nick's honor in a way that I guess only two battlefield-tested, you know, colonels can kind of respect about one another. And that's a that's another big theme in the book is Nick, you know, having better relationships with his enemies because they have shared experience and he can relate more than to the people he quote unquote, you know, should love and care about and are his friends. So Giap being the perfect mirror image of Nick Fury is kind of like the perfect way to tell this story from like an outsider looking in. And it's it's just it, i mean it's com- i'm completely mesmerized by the the theme and the the realistic tone that had you had i not read it for the show i probably would have just assumed it was more marvel knights it was just nick fury and shield when it was really none of that it was that's not even i mean it's a nick fury book in name but it could be anything it could be you know, uh, some it could be Franklin J. Hummel from The Rock. Like he, he's just a, a BA soldier who loves his country. Mm. And it's, it's like, that, by the way, <laughs> it's like uh, nitty gritty. Um, it's just it, if whatever you think about uh, this being a Marvel comic, throw it out the window because it's not. It's only a Marvel comic in name. And. Like to to give you an idea, the first page. So the overarching plot is him 
pouring his heart out onto this old-timey recorder recording device and just telling his history audibly and which is a great touch because Nick Fury would probably know only know how to work this old-timey audio device even though he could have been speaking into anything he could have been speaking into an iPhone from when the time says recording it but uh <clears throat> his opening the opening dialogue in the whole book is my name is Nick Fury I've had a bullet in my head since 1944 I cannot I can't seem to die don't even age much I fight and F like a GD demon. I lick up war like it was sugar. These are the things I've done for my country. And other, I mean, other than the fact that it's Nick Fury and he's nearly ageless, it could have been, it could be anybody. And the plot that's woven in the, uh, the, in Vietnam just starts laying the groundwork for this, Friend, this amazing friendship. Uh, Nick Fury will do anything for his country, and he'll do anything for his good friends. And to see Giap, I don't know if Giap gets away clean. Yeah, he does get away clean because he lets Fury and Hatherley walk out of there. Well, just Fury, because Hatherley was already sent away, and he oh, that's, he makes yeah. Fury do that like walk of shame through the decapitated head <laughs> pathway that they've made with all their enemies. And I think I'm not sure if Giap says it in this one or later in the book, but he says there is no atrocity I will not commit. Yeah, to make sure it, that my country stays free. He says in the third arc where he's essentially got Fury or he wants him. How about the, uh, we totally glossed over the female character, Shirley. Shirley the fav- my d- favorite character in this book, ha- hands down. My gosh. I would love to take her on a long walk on the beach. This spitfire of a woman, as Fury calls her. So there's Pug, the the politician. He has a secretary, Shirley, and she's introduced in the beginning of the book. I think if she won, she's at a bar and some drunkards come onto her and she just beats the crap out of him. And that's that's your introduction. She's a total, <laughs> you know, she could break your face open. And Fury sees this and he, he's kind of intrigued. And you see her later in the in the book and you, I think maybe it's issue two or three where Fury beds Shirley, so to speak. Yeah. And they begin this decades-long love affair. You know, a couple times a year they'll get together and drink some champagne or Jack Daniels and spend the night in the bedroom. F like and demons. <laughs> yeah. So their relationship. You gotta clip that audio out later. It's Shirley, uh, you know, the main characters are re- essentially Shirley, Pug, and Fury, and I guess Hatherly at the same time, but you see these characters grow and age over the course of this book like no other series that I can think of. There's no kind of we're going to set this book in 1950 and it's going to be like this for 60 issues and they don't age. These characters do age and you not gracefully in some cases. And the it's it's a it's amazing to see Fury and and Shirley who are there's a great line that she posits about how I think it might be the end where they she assumes that he's dead because they cut off the connection between I think it was it was this story and she references that she like sees a lot of him in her or you know they're very similar and i see him every time i look in the mirror 
and these two in, a, in another world they would have been together but in this world you know nothing can satisfy fury he loves war and she eventually hooks up with with pug right and he's the safe bet <clears throat> and uh she's a good trophy for pug i mean he's a senator or he's aiming to be a senator and something like that an, uh, a acknowledged woman which you know in the eventually does not care about because she's just arm candy but She's a good advisor to him. Goron can draw a naked woman like nobody I've ever seen in my life. Honest to God. Like, I, I just looked over at both of you, and your heads were down at your iPad or <laughs> what have you, and I, I assume that you're scrolling past the various love-making scenes in this book. <laughs> Actually, the mall pro- screenshotted in uh, a secret folder that's hidden. <laughs> you can probably see the reflection in the lenses of my glasses, which I'm going to have to... It's a folder on Jones's computer marked uninstall, thinking no one will ever touch it for fear of hurting something. But, I mean, his artwork in this book, and Nick Lowe, who was the editor, kind of referenced it at the end, but he can draw a reaction and emotion in these books that, like, you know, most artists cannot do. And, like, you can see it in the faces of all the characters in this book. Yeah, the art is unlike... I mean, this is fantastic art. If you're familiar with Starlight by Mark Miller nowadays... Uh, he's on that now, but the art with the colors on this is definitely like the total package. I I I like his art more here, but that's probably has a lot to do with the colors as well, obviously. But I, I mean, I was sold by the first three issues. I was like, this is something totally unexpected. I would never expected this to be as fantastic as it was, and it would definitely be re reclassified if i could go back to 2013 you know this would mm-hmm. be up there as one of the top books i agree sure. 100% with that statement okay so the second uh three set of issues deals with the failed uh bay of pigs invasion in cuba and at this point uh fury and hatherley are established uh behind enemy lines you know, two-man wet work team that can kind of go in and solve your problem. Not directly on the payroll of McCuskey, but definitely have a lot of interaction with him and, and where his interests lie within getting rid of communists, but there's always kind of a other shoe that has not yet dropped with these missions. So uh, basically they want Fidel Castro dead. So who's the only one that can go in and get it done you know, super spy Nick Fury. So at this point, uh, Shirley has confessed to Nick that she's going to marry Pug uh, while she, you know, not loves, but is infatuated with Nick. Nick can't give her a life that she wants of comfort and, uh, and ease. So she's basically going to go with the sure thing, as Dale was saying. So Nick, not discouraged by this because he's going to continue to have an extramarital affair with her, uh, anyhow, uh, gets good old Hatherley and essentially sets up the Bay of Pigs as a huge misdirect while he goes into Havana to get Fidel with Hatherley as the trigger man. Uh, as history dictates, the, pay, uh, the invasion is a total failure. And so is Nick's mission. And Hatherly, Nick, and a third uh, special ops 
guy get pinched essentially by one of Fidel's right hand men, and uh, they get he the third guy gets fed to the sharks while trying to make them confess to the world stage that they're assassins. Uh, this fuels Nick to kind of get away and and you know throw a gambit and and defeat the death squad. They steal a boat. You know, as the whole nation is hearing this other story, we're privy to the the real behind the scenes uh, Bay of Pigs. And in one of the most heartbreaking scenes of the book, the third soldier has had to have his arm rem- arms removed by with field surgery. He's all tourniqueted up. Uh, he starts going hysterical, and that what is he going to do? He's an armless man. Uh, Nick eloquently as I am obviously not tonight, uh, describes to Nick how he's got a wife, she'll still love him, they'll figure it all out, and just when the guy passes out thinking that maybe he will be all right, Nick, uh, Mercy kills him right there on the boat in front of Hatherley. And in one of the defining moments of the book for Hatherley's character, he decides that that's it. You know, working with a Nazi, he can learn to, you know, to get around that kind of thing, he can learn to trust Nick, but in a world where they kill their own, he he no longer has the stomach for it. And that's the main plot point for all four characters, uh, with McCuskey rising to the ranks as kind of like a black ops puppet master directing the secret interests of the uh, CIA. Yeah, the mercy killing was, I mean, it was fantastic. It was heartbreaking, but... The honest truth was, and Nick tells Hatherley after he does it, he says, now his wife's going to get a folded flag to hang up over the mantle, and he's probably going to be set up for the rest of her life with the family because uh, she she's probably in the long run, you know, she doesn't have to know this, but in the long run, she's probably going to be better off with him, a dead soldier, than one completely maimed going home and being a... a, a a hindrance and you can kind of see the like that character and Hatherly they're like two parallels themselves because that guy is like a no-nonsense marine Mm -hmm. and Hatherly is still kind of a father or a family man soldier he's not like a tough as nails he's just kind of like he might just be the the most readers the majority of the people that read this would probably associate themselves with Hatherley during mm-hmm. this book. And there was like a few minor points. I want to clarify that uh, Jonesy loves eloquence. The <laughs> The soldier at the end, so they're all ki- they're kidnapped. The sniper, they totally fail from killing Castro, and they would have had him in a second. But somebody saw them and alerted and started screaming. So they get captured, and they get, they see this other guy get tortured with a, what do you call that thing? Vice. Uh, the, the vice. This guy's head gets put in a vice and crunched up. So they're about to kill the three of them, and they take him out to the ocean. And this, I think his name was Elgin. Yeah. Um, they those the guy that's in charge of like torturing them and murdering them sticks his knife in his nether region and just cuts off his lower area, and then throws him into the water of the sharks. So this is the toughest nails marine we were talking about earlier. And they eventually get out of this mess, amazingly, because the whole the whole book is full of fury by the skin of his teeth surviving. And they save this guy. He wakes up in this boat. They're kind of adrift. 
and he wakes up and notices that he has no arms. And he even says, like, you know, I'm nothing. I can't do anything for my wife now. And Hatherly, like, assures him, like, a caring mother, like, oh, you're going to be fine. Don't worry about it. And then Hatherly kind of goes away. And then the soldier's like, uh, Nick. Yeah. You know and what to do. Fury's like, yeah. <laughs> and then he shoots him right in the head. The sold, There was like an unspoken bond between these two that they just knew what had to happen. They he And it was amazing. Like the, the lack of communication between the soldier and Fury was like magical for lack of a more sympathetic term. And there was so much, this arc really like made me cheer for Ennis's knowledge of war and history because there was a lot of factual information about uh, uh, Cuba and the crisis that happened there that got into this book like when uh, Fury mentioned that the they painted up the uh, the American planes to look like Cuban turncoat planes you know Mm. it was factual information because they weren't the the same planes they even though they're painted up to look like it and that was something that really happened and when they did, when the Cubans did capture Fury and Hatherley and Elgin, he mentions that he there's they he can't torture them at first because if they as soon as they lay a hand on them and the U.S. government finds out there's actual war because up until now it's like been this standoffish, uh, secretive uh, ops missions because everybody's turned the other head because they're playing this game of chicken with because of bombs and and russians and and a lot worse but uh so he just tortures one of his own in front of the people and that's what makes hatherly weak in the knees hatherly's like i'm gonna tell him everything i you know he can't put these guys through it and they're on a mission that's completely deniable back in the state so you give you give what you can up and you're not going to be celebrated for dying or getting sent back. I mean, they're going to deny you wherever they are to begin with, so you're just giving the Cubans information for no reason whatsoever. Like, right, it's not like they're going to let you live because you gave right. it to them. Yeah, exactly. So uh, it, I was just completely impressed. It made me, starting with this arc and moving forward, it just made me want to get more knowledge about the actual situations they were in, like the historical, the Bay of Pigs. I wanted to start reading a book about the Bay of Pigs to get, to pick up on any more information that I'm, that I definitely didn't, don't know Hmm. because it was so, it looked so good, the art and then the, the information being tossed around like the, uh, the, the group of Cubans that were in Pug's house and they were planning, that's who planned the assassination. I, I, I was just completely amazing. How the, about, like those those Cubans were in the house with Pug, the guys that were like orchestrating the whole thing and waiting for it to go to completion. So they're in Pug's house this whole time, listening to the radio transmissions, and eventually they go out. So they have no idea, and their men are presumed dead. and And surely DeFabio was there, looking fantastic stunning. and gorgeous and beautiful, stunning. Any phrase you want to think of she's there as well and then when things really go south and pug is responsible for essentially responsible for helping orchestrate this whole thing he just disappears and he leaves surely there with like six cuban extradited cuban men that have just tried to assassinate 
Castro from afar. And he just disappears and leaves her there. <laughs> and she gets her face beat in because they they need they need to pay him back, essentially. And then the conversation was so amazing where she finally meets up with him afterward and he just pretends like, oh, you know, I didn't think they'd get violent. I just, I just knew I had to get out of there. He's just like at his desk reading paperwork. Right, like she... Like I'm a senator, baby. You should understand. You know, you had. Of course, you understood. I, ha- I, I can't have anything happen to me. If if anybody finds out about what was happening in that house, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And she just late. You know, that's when she starts laying down the law. Like, you piece of crap. You're not going to treat me like. And he pretty much says, uh, "Yeah, I am," because you want an easy life. And what are you going to do? Marry Nick Fury? So what? Well, I- do they even? Do they, he doesn't allude to that yet. No, he doesn't book. allude. Like, at they're this having point this. He knows about the affair. Uh, yeah, they're having this amazing sexual affair <laughs> that will make your pants shoot across the room. Jelly undies. But, I mean, how, how disgust? I mean, how disgusting is Pug too at this point? Oh, yeah. Like he is just a terrible human being. You don't really know yet his ultimate motives in all of these kind of missions and maybe you have started to piece together while you're reading this and it comes to a head during that, um, maybe not the final issue, but the end of the final act. But man, what a scumbag. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, And there's also one point in this arc that we have to make note because it's a really important, important, important for Shirley's, um, uh, personal climax at the end of the book is that, scene at the bar where her and Hatherly are talking about Nick and the kind of attention that Hatherly is paying her and no matter what bad decision she seems to be making, Hatherly is right there to support her and kind of be her personal cheerleader with the decisions she's making and it's a small scene in the book but it pays off big uh, in the last issue. Yeah, that the groundwork that was laid in almost every issue comes back to roost in the last one or two issues. I mean, it was amazing how much gets tied up that could have been left by itself, but it comes back around. I mean, that and that's a, a major, that's a major one that gets tied mm-hmm. up. But it's it's amazing how the, the book comes full circle and, and closes some of those storylines, or at least gives you a little more information that they, they, they were there for a reason. So, Vietnam then? Bells? Mm-hmm. Yeah. When all right. So the third arc uh sees Hatherly in a total support function. Uh he's moved from being a trigger man to being essentially Fury's Oracle, and then he's always the other man on the other end of the radio. You know, Nick will parachute behind enemy lines and will, you know, hump a bunch of clicks over jungle territory as long as Hatherly is the one giving him guidance. So, left without a trigger man, Nick Fury is forced to recruit a young sniper with a huge record and someone who is special forces and can be trusted implicitly. So, he comes upon a young Frank Castle. And Frank is a, I believe, Army Ranger Sniper Corps. And he is going to support Nick uh, through his adventure in Vietnam, ultimately to take out his old friend Gyap, through the direct, now the direct orders of Pug, who is 
certainly at this point, a key player in the CIA's ultra black ops agendas in the uh, eastern part of the world. Uh, Nick and uh, Shirley continue their affair, this time in Saigon. And from its appearance early in the story, even the city has had a character change when it's overrun by drug addicts and uh, prostitutes. So Nick at this point, knowing he has to go after Giap, and he wants him dead after the embarrassment in the first story arc, uh, stumbles upon a camp where he's taking, uh, him and uh, Frank are taking capture, and Giap basically again, very intelligently, lays out the law. You know, it's your government is on purpose supplying cocaine and heroin to this part of the world and reaping the windfall benefits. And they're trying to destroy my nation through decadence and economy rather than direct warfare because they know that nobody can drop the bombs. So they're going to have to defeat their enemies, you know, the only way they know how. And somebody, some figure, some one person is profiting from this immensely. And that's your real enemy. And Nick, it kind of gives Nick pause. But at this point, he's still not willing to give up the front lines and the action to follow his own skeletons in his closet. Uh, Frank puts a bullet through Giap's neck. And uh, once again, through the skin of his teeth, Nick lives through this whole ordeal. And Shirley, now married to Pug, truly sees what kind of monster he is. How about the 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 part where um Frank and Nick are sent and how how amazing is Frank Castle in this book and you can and even Fury acknowledges how this guy reacts and thinks the exact same way I do he's all for the mission and that's it and their interaction during the first maybe 10 or 15 pages of that issue oh boy Mm. Oh, I'd read a whole mini series of just those two on miscellaneous missions. Fury yeah. Born, starring guest starring Frank Castle, and Garan's depiction of Frank Castle is amazing. I, I mean, he is model American. He he's compl- he looks like a football. Player. He looks like a linebacker. He does. His forearms are majestic. His his. <laughs> His five to ten o'clock shadow on his face. I mean, he just uh-huh. looks great in uniform. He really does. One of my favorite parts of the entire series was when they come upon this little, this eight-year-old kid. So they're they're trekking through Vietnam, hopefully in secret. But then they encounter this kid that starts crying as soon as they see him. So their cover is like ninety-nine percent blown. They have to make a decision to kill this kid. Mm-hmm. Or like tie him up, take him with them, or leave him, and then they even discuss the fallout from each option. Like if we leave him here, you know, we should assume that they'll be on us in in one hour. We're wearing this gear; that means they'll be catching up with us in thirty minutes. But if we kill him, it'll take him this long to find the body. And they just have that exchange where they think of every possible angle and how they should react to it. And then, but they had this really brief exchange where I think even Fury says, I don't have it in me to kill a kid, do you? And Castle says no. And that's how they make the decision to leave Great the kid. Moment. 
Yeah, so as hard edge as they were. That's kind of how the whole book, like, if you, it's a gray area whether Nick Fury is good or bad. But that's the one moment that beyond all this, underneath all of it, he still has honor, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And when they, so eventually the troops do catch up with them. They kind of assume the worst, so they wait and hunger down and set mines and stuff. They know they're coming for them because they, they saw this kid. And then when they get kind of almost herded towards the edge of this cliff, I thought it was amazing where they see water down below. It's like this huge drop, and they don't know how shallow it is, so they, they throw this one guy over the edge <laughs> and see if he, you know, he bounces essentially in the water. And he there's it's like an inch of water. So they get captured, and, and Giep gives them this amazing speech where they have to... I thought it was amazing, like, the turn that this book took because Giap reveals to them that he knew they were coming because he was aware of this dirty business that these CIA guys were taking part in that orchestrated right. this whole hit. And he presents them with evidence of how dirty and corrupt this agency is. And he's he essentially says, you know, let me, I'm going to the press. This war will end when I bring this evidence to the press. And now Fury and Frank have this talk like, do you think Castle, and we know Castle as as the Punisher, he wants war, he never wants the war to end. And he's like, do you think he could really end the war? And Fury's like, if not ended, it'll be cut very short. And the one issue ends with Castle pretty much saying, well, we can't let that happen. (laughs) And that's where the decision is made where they decide to just let all hell break loose and stop him at all costs. I mean, the speech, I think Gap talks for like maybe 15 pages and all of it is all, it's so eloquent and you want to partner up with Gap almost, even though he's, he's going to burn the hero of the story. He's the real protagonist. Yeah. He, and he claims he, I mean, he, he's reserved his seat in hell for the atrocities he's committing, but it's all in the name of, you know, the freedom of his country and for them to live how they want to live. And when he presents this evidence to Nick Fury, I mean, Nick Fury's one eye is open wider than ever. I mean, his jaw drops. He's like, yeah, this Giap guy has some stuff, and it's truth. Holy crap. I mean, you you just, you you want to, like, root for Giap in a way because these dirty CIA agents are contributing to... In their encroachment in their lifestyle, obviously. That's mm-hmm. what Giap's fighting for. But Now, one of the better nuances of this arc is basically that Giap outlines that once I had this file, this damning file on the U.S. CIA, uh, I let it be known to some key people that I had it. And my assumption was the only person they would dare send that had a chance of getting me was you. And I knew that if I that I could appeal to you with, you know, this information. And even though Nick doesn't kind of take the bait, the coda of the story is that Nick remembers the three people who Giap explained. And Pug is like, oh, did you hear that our top three CIA directors were killed outside of a whorehouse in Saigon and with their <laughs> throats slit and robbed? Do you know anything about that, Nick? And Nick's like, sure don't. But, uh, you know, I, I think at this point also that Nick kind of puts together what the reader already knows, that Pug is the one where all this money is funneling to, and that's why he's directing the CIA, so he can enrich himself. How about the scene where 
uh, fear or Castle goes to the top of the hill with his sniper rifle and starts picking people off. And even Fury is like taken aback by once he gets out of that place, he's burned the documents that Giap had and Giap gets shot in the neck and presumed dead. And he, and even Fury is like, Whoa, Castle is one mean SOB <laughs> yeah. right now. And when, when they, sh- the art, I mean, the, it's like action in still pictures, but when they show that Castle is perched somewhere on the side of a hill and he's sniping tens of Vietnamese soldiers, maybe, you know, borderline 100, he's taking them all out and they can't find the guy. Nick Fury just, like, gives him accolades. He's like, this guy is a machine. Essentially, Nick's running unarmed through a whole camp and there's this enemy exploding to his left and right as Castle clears a path for him. Uh, directly to get out it's it, can you imagine if uh, fury max was like a six-hour hbo <laughs> drama God. oh my god we would say that this would be the greatest action sequence i'd ever seen it was fantastic because when i uh first opened issue seven it's just a shadowy figure in like camo green color with just the punisher symbol and I'm just like, no, no, they they, they aren't. I, I couldn't believe it. And it was just utilized so well that it just adds to the, the glory of the book. And there wasn't any, like, over-the-top Punisher lines. Like, I, we said it before, but this isn't the Marvel Universe. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no, you know, vengeance will be mine or he's, we have to protect the innocents. He is a tough as nails. He doesn't speak. He doesn't say anything he doesn't need to. And he doesn't even really say... They go their separate ways at the end of the book. And and that's that. Like, this Frank Castle character... If you'd never even read a Punisher book... Yeah. You, you would have just been impacted by this character in Fury Max. Which I thought was amazing. Yeah, you would just be impact, You would just be floored by this this character who is as competent, if not more, than and Nick Fury himself. And he's doing it, you know, in the name of America. He's a he's top army ranger... Sniper squad, as Jonesy, uh, I think Jonesy sniped Sniper Ranger Sniper Ranger Corps squad leader one. So uh, that brings us finally to uh, Nicaragua, which is in many ways the culmination uh, or the penultimate culmination of everything Fury has been kidding himself and lying to himself about. Uh, Hatherly and Nick are sent to the field to investigate a black ops special forces camp uh, on the border of Nicaragua who are clandestinely supplying weapons and training to, um, what what was the name of the the force? The Contra? Contra. So they're basically funneling uh, training and guns to somebody they want to overthrow the government and they can disavow any kind of relationship with. And in return, uh, the Contra is funneling large amounts of cocaine back to the U.S. along with, you know, whatever drug money they're able to sell in their own country. So basically the rebels uh, who are, you know, purportedly in the right are basically cocaine smugglers on the direct payroll of the U.S. government. And Pug sends Fury and Hatherley in to be kind of a 
you know, inspection squad, kind of a, a powerless, you know, or, you know, powerless two-man crew to be like, oh, no, everything's really okay. It's no drugs. We're just, you know, stepping to this black op. But when Fury shows up in the helicopter, everybody's kind of like, oh, S. We thought it was going to be some kind of, you know, dinky inspector, and they sent, like, the most famous black op operator of all time. You know, what are we going to do? So the main uh, ringleader sets up a suicide note with the camp's captain uh, to kind of throw Fury off the trail. Of course, Fury doesn't take the bait at all because he's seen it all. Uh, you know, gets to the bottom of the real um, the real deal. He gets to the bottom of the whole drug ring. He corners the guy. The guy's got him outgunned, outmanned. He's ready to take Fury out. And just when Fury's kind of like ready to accept death, and he's like, maybe this is what I deserve, the guy's like, there's no way in, in H I'm going to shoot Nick Fury and bring a total S-storm on myself. You know, by the time you make it back to camp and radio in what you discovered, I'll be long gone with all my drug money. So have a nice life. And uh, I think the guy's name is Barracuda. So Nick's like, okay, check. You're on my S list. I'm going to come get you someday. <laughs> so, and at this point, Nick confronts uh pug and is basically like look now i know for a fact it's you you've you know manipulated world wars for the last three decades and i've been your front man and this can't continue and pug's basically like so what are you gonna do exactly what can you do i'm basically married to the girl you've been sleeping with for decades she belongs to me and without me nobody is ever going to put you in the field and give you a command because you've been the you know the biggest black ops d for 30 years and who's gonna trust you and nick is basically like stunned in the silence and uh you know he kind of takes shirley gets on his plane and flies away and uh nick is essentially at this point he knows the hell that he is contrived for himself but he can't get away because he loves it too much i thought uh, for whatever reason i still like hadn't viewed pug as not really caring like up until this point when i had first read it i still thought that mccuskey was still against communist rule and until this point in the book fury you know he's like why do you really think communist rule is going to hurt the united states these people are peasants even if they run the show themselves they can't hurt us and then pug was like let's just say for a minute that's true and i don't believe communism will hurt the united states why would i be doing it and like that unravels the 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 layers of pug not even giving a crap about communism like this whole time he was just trying to feed his you know to make money sell arms Mm -hmm. and this was the first time that you really see pug admit that who gives a crap about communism? I was I was making sick bank over these decades. And before I forget, like this is 1984 now. So we're like almost 40 years into the story and all these characters have aged. Fury looks very older. You know, he's an older man. And even our luscious, gorgeous mm-hmm. Shirley has aged at this point. Mm-hmm. You know, this is 1984 now. And that's one of the things I loved about this book is that these characters age and we see their lives progress. Yeah, Hatherly is like a bald man. He's got five kids at this point. I mean, he's he's just your typical 
old man. He looks like a dad that should be mowing the lawn somewhere. Yeah, he really does. Enjoying time with his young grandkids. <laughs> and he's just there with Fury on this inspection mission because it was an inspection mission. There wasn't supposed to be anything intense going down. He's just there you know, as Fury's partner to check things out. That's the only reason why Hathaway was even in the field to begin with at this point. But yeah. And I did love that that re- reoccurring line uh, that Fury has been giving Hatherley this whole time during that, you know, that inspection scene. You know, when he gave up after Fidel, um, you know, Hatherley tells uh, Fury that I just don't have that kind of courage anymore. And then kind of Fury throws it back in his teeth here. He's kind of like, I-, I would make you my second. Uh, but I have to do it alone because you don't have that kind of courage anymore. And you're kind of like, oh, Nick, that's this guy's been your best friend for like 40 years. Why would you say something like that? And it's only to reaffirm that line when it gets used in the final issue. And you realize in this story that Hatherly is the love of Nick Fury's life. He's the only guy that has always ever had his back. You know, bar none, Shirley left him for Pug. And kind of toy with his emotions for decades. Pug just wants to use him as a pawn. And the only guy that's ever gave an S about Fury being okay as a person is Hatherley. And, you know, Nick being Nick, he just doesn't know it. And it's right in his face. And the, I mean, it really starts to come to pass. The <clears throat> Pug shows that that side of him, that Slim mentioned. But then he also, you know, he reveals to his wife that he's known she's been doing him for decades, doing Nick for decades. And what's she going to do? I mean, without him, she's got no money. She's got nothing. So she's just going to stay there Mm -hmm. and remain by his side because at this point, who's going to want her Nick Fury (laughs) out there, gallivanting across the world. You know, uh, he, he, he could have had that years ago and he didn't want it. So, yeah, that was what a that total was a tough dressing, scene. total dressing down of her. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, into absolutely nothing. Like he had her too. Everything he said was correct. You you've been going behind my back this whole time. What are you going to do about it? And she could do nothing. And and you could even see. I think the 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 the, the Cuba arc is when you first really saw her starting hitting the bottle really hard. Oh and yeah. By this time in 1984. You know, it's taken it's taken a toll on her. She's drinking at like you know eleven a.m. at this point. Yeah, she even says, "Make, make yourself a drink." You know, nine a.m. never stopped you before. And I think in the uh, Vietnam arc, I think you f- was it Vietnam that you see that Pug was PO'd that Nick Fury survived. Yeah, essentially, I think Pug was absolutely sending him in to fail because he had to know right. that Giap knew because of that file. So he had to know that if he sent Nick in, there's a good chance Nick won't come back. So I'll still, Gap will be dead and the rival for my wife's affection will be dead. So it's a win-win scenario. So when he shows up at that plane, it's basically like, hey, I know what you're all about. He's like, yeah, whatever. You know what I mean? I've been trying to eliminate you for, you know, how many tens of years. Oh, man. So the... We got to talk about the, the climax the one, then. Before, well, hold, go ahead. The, the one, if I had one, I mean, the Barracuda stuff was intense. He was and the revenge, like Fury. So this Barracuda character, 
they finally do have this confrontation with Fury that you talked about. But if I had one flaw in the book, and I, I don't, maybe I didn't notice it before, but I forgot, but Fury walks upon this village that the Barracuda's A-team has, you know, raped and pillaged and just massacred this village with, like, unborn children they've ripped from the womb and whatever. God, I kind of blocked that this, scene out. Mm. He sees this at night with his night vision goggles, and that issue ends. But the next issue starts really strangely, and I don't know if I missed something or the maybe the files and digital book is different, but the next issue starts in daylight, and Barracuda has Hatherly kidnapped. Did I miss something? No, I, like, I think... Do you guys remember that? I think that... What happened was Barracuda figured out that Fury was on their trail uh, because of the communication. They got the Fury commandeer, the helicopter, and now nobody knows where they are. So Barracuda, proving that he's not a dummy, I think went and grabbed Hatherly as leverage for when Nick finally showed up. That scene, though, oh my God. What? I can't even really talk about it. They They take an infant... Who they have? Should we? They, should we? Let's even talk not. About you know, it. let's just skip it. But Barracuda is a bad dude, and uh, Nick eventually, through without the approval of the CIA, tracks him down and gives him his comeuppance. And I think I, I was never more satisfied by a revenge shooting by a man in a trench coat than when Nick Fury got Barracuda in the end. Ugh. I thought it was amazing that he wa- he was okay waiting five years. Like, I waited five years later, I found him, and I was able to, you know, take care of it. But even he even remarks afterward that it didn't mean a hill of beans in the grand scheme of things. No, he just wanted to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, the climax then, uh, basically Hatherly is dying, and he sees Shirley, you know, his old friend for the last time. And she's basically going off. She's like, I should have married Nick. Pug is disgusting. You know, his young hooker now lives with us. And I'm basically forced to, you know, be in that situation. And Hatherly's like, you know, Fury wasn't the only one that loved you. You know what I mean? I loved you too all these years. But he says it in a a much better way than I just did. So she kind of like snaps. Nice old man way. Yeah, like a nice caring old man. Like, you're a looker gal or something like that. And uh, so finally she loses it. You know, she's thinking of that. I could have been Hatherly's wife. I could have really had a good life. I could have had kids. And I didn't need all this wealth. So she's in the kitchen hitting the bottle. Shocker. And the young hooker comes in and, like, grabs a bottle of vodka from her faltering hand and kind of, like, gives her a smirk. Then the next scene is Pug, like, desperately, grossly trying to get it in. And, uh... <laughs> I'm assuming it's in. Yeah, I, I don't you know. I couldn't even tell. So, But the look, but the look on the hooker's face is... Com- is Comic she looks gold. like she's the, yeah, the she hooker could be reading a magazine, organizing yeah, her DVR face. recordings in her head, and Shirley's just like, you know what, I'm done, and she like mind f's him. She's like, finish, fin like she's got the gun to his head. You better finish, and uh, well, he she, keeps going, and then pow, she she, she shoots, shoots the hooker, the hooker. In the head. Yeah, she and shoots then the says hooker finish. and says finish. So Pug like finishes because he's an animal. And then she kills well, him, he too. he finished because he thought he she was going to kill him if he didn't. <laughs> right. He had to know at that point That's he why. was dead either way. 
And uh, I mean, you can't take that chance, Jonesy. It's <laughs> not. Jesus, Jonesy. What a debate we're having. This used to be a, a family friend show, a family friendly show. I really it's can't never talk. Your whole segment from the last 10 minutes is going to be gone and edited out. Yeah, please. The whole show. I can't even say English words right now. So, um, yeah. So she calls Nick and was like, I did it. I'm free. And Nick's like, what are you talking about? And uh, yeah, he discovers that the woman he quote unquote loved is now snapped so that's another relationship nick has uh led through the fire and left there well the, the i think the more powerful scene for me was when they met up at the bar earlier after, mm. and this is the first I time can't. we see them you know really as i mean you, you could say elderly i mean they have to be 65 70 years old at this point and they meet up at the bar and they're kind of you know this is their final meeting and Man, what a tough scene to to digest. She mentions, you know, Fury looks great, and he. And I think he said he's like, I look like fifty miles through the dirt or whatever. <laughs> and the really tough scene is when you know these people, these two have had this wild sex life for a few decades, but they're they're old, and it's the first time they've seen each other in a long time. And she's like, you know. We could go, and then Fury's like, well, I got to get up early in the morning. <laughs> it's like, uh, and you know, I got to go. Uh, he won't even really look at her. And she, I mean, she's an old woman, and that moment where, like, he doesn't want to sully the memories that they've had, but he won't. He wouldn't say that. He just kind of ignores her at this bar, and, and that's the moment where she, that single conversation makes her reevaluate her entire life, how it was all ruined because they never got together and and ran away. He's mm-hmm. like, we could have saved each other from him. She whispers to herself at the bar. Like, ugh, what a what a downer for her. So yeah, she goes, kills the hooker, kills Pug, and then kills herself. Goodness. So the, the one uplifting, uh, if you can be said, uh, moment about this book is Fury tries to attend... Uh, Hatherley's funeral and his wife is not having it because he was the one that essentially kept him away all those years. And had one of Hatherley's granddaughters approaches Nick and was like, look, mom just doesn't want to talk to you right now. She's going through that stuff. You know, maybe one day come around again and you know, it'll be forgotten. But uh, I'm mad at you too, but I really want to know what did my grandfather do? He never really talked about it. And even in the times he opened up uh, in the later years, it wasn't about his work. It was about you. And she throws the line back in his teeth. And she said, he even told me that you wouldn't be here for him. You just didn't have that kind of courage. And like Nick is taken aback by that line. And that's kind of the the premise of the whole book is Nick is a frontline warrior who doesn't know how to act or be with anybody else outside of that role. And in that moment, Nick realizes it. And the capstone of the book is Nick back in the hotel room uh, with the tape recorder. And he basically says the line, you know, if anyone ever found this recording of the secret history of the CIA, you know, this would be the most damning tape to ever go out. But it's really, this is all about Hatherly and the fact that I thought I was the perfect soldier but the first time we met, he told me the only reason people you know, should serve is because we owe it 
to all those lives that were laid down to provide us with our freedom. freedom. So the perfect soldier is the one that honors that commitment. And that's the way the story ends. And you realize that Nick, while being the perfect soldier, Hatherly was really the the good one throughout the years. Yeah, just a, a it's a it was just a sobering, sobering issue to be the last. I mean, his friend passes away, and he just kind of realizes that that. I mean, then more than ever, he's had this friend in Hatherly all along, and you know, just Nick Fury's just not the guy to open up and express that. And the way he expresses it is through a bottle and speaking into an old-timey microphone. Like, that's his way of speaking to Hatherly. And then when he... I forget how the... the, the basically, the closing lines is... The red... It, it's, it was about the American flag, and it's about how, uh, you know, the, it's patriotism is expressed every day. I should have written it down or screenshotted the page, but uh, it's through the the bleeding through the red bleeding through the white gauze on a soldier's uh, battle-wounded body and the stars in the sky. And it was like very uh, parallel, you know, to the American flag. It was like symbolism or something. It was, it was a really great line, but it's like a punch in the stomach. The, the entire issue was just... Yeah, he said, um, when he was talking about the stars, he told me it had to do with a debt we owed to the past and the responsibility we owed to the future. He said it was right there for all to see. Blood on the bandaged wounds of brave men and all the stars in the sky. And that was, those were his last words. And there was, like, really, the minutia in that granddaughter character I thought was great, where he meets up with her afterward and you kind of... I'm curious if maybe she doesn't hate Fury like the other family members do. And he she explains, like, yeah, they're going through that. And, and then he's like, oh, yeah, I'm very sorry. And she's like, no, don't do that. And her quote was, there are limits to my understanding, Colonel, so please, no platitudes for the fallen that you failed. And she makes it very clear that she, you know, does not appreciate him as a person and what her father went through and like, she's still very upset. I thought that like cut really like a really deep cut to fury that the way he wrote that line, I thought was really great. And we kind of glossed over the other amazing part where fury after the funeral, he's walking through the memorial and he meets up with Giap like at the, Memorial, he's just there in a jacket, and he's like, oh, Mr. Fury, how are you? <laughs> and they have this, like, Nick Fury's older... face is like, what? He just, he, like, crapped in his, his uh, depends at this point. He's still alive, and so he takes off his little scarf, and he's got the wound that went right through his neck. So he survived their meeting where Fury burned the evidence. He didn't die in, in the, you know, the huge explosion. He's been alive this whole time, and they have this amazing kind of one-sided conversation where he says, you know, it was all for nothing. You know, Vietnam didn't grow to glory like I thought it would. All those atrocities I committed were for nothing. You know, and they talk about government and Congress and life and liberty. And it was just so amazing that this character would be still alive. And he's like the, the other fury, this parallel fury. 
and they meet up at this funeral and they shake hands at the end and they go about their separate ways. Amazing. And that was it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they shake hands in the end. It was just, it's just so deep. There's just like Nick Fury's just like, yeah, you know what? F it. Shake hands and <laughs> like, <laughs> why be bitter old enemies at this point? And Gap's like, yeah, I offered to tell my experiences at this university who's, you know, doing a a write-up on the Cold War and asked me to come over and talk about how it really was and what the motives were. And I felt, you know, obliged to come and educate people about what it was like. And he's like, oh, you could probably do the same thing. Nick's like, oh, yeah, sure I will. You know, classic Fury. Uh-huh. But, man, I this issue... In the final, the final two issues, whatever order you want to say, but man, what an ending to feel like in my head, he just kind of just croaked at the end or passed out or whichever you prefer, but they kind of left it open with the final shot of the gun too, but unbelievable. One of, I, I can't think of anything like from beginning to end from Garth Ennis that I admire as highly as this work. Like, his Punisher stuff is great. Everyone loves Welcome Back Frank and his Punisher Max stuff. But, yeah, I mean, this is, like, untouchable. I completely agree. I mean, they, I don't... I've never read a whole lot of Garth Ennis stuff. But, you know, when it is, it's it's like for Paper Keg Nights. And uh, God knows what atrocities are being committed in the books that, you know, they're reading for that. But... It's How just, bonkers is like that he writes that, but can also write Fury Max. Like the the differences in those books is alarming almost. It really is, and it's just because of the subject matter. He's just so free to write whatever's on his mind, no matter how d- deep that rabbit hole goes. But this, I mean, this book is coming out in hardcover in August, by the way, people. So if you, I mean, this, like. To step back as a, as a recap and to step back about what I wanted to say in the beginning, in every sense of the word, it's not a Marvel book that you expect. It's it's a it's something that satisfies a fix that I was seeking out for a long time, which is like a, a combat book, a war book about war, and it's not necessarily about the uh, the troops on the ground. Like there's a book out there called The Nam that I've been wanting to read for a, a while and that's a marvel book too incidentally but it's about history and it might be a alternate or uh a, you know a, a fictional history because it involves this fictional nick fury character but the factoids in it the art the lack of superheroes the lack of shield it's just an american in in working for the american government doing black ops things in real world scenarios and it's i was completely blown away by the story and i highly recommend anybody check this out for something that they totally did not expect i i certainly didn't expect i expected nick fury agent of shield dropping f-bombs that's all honestly that's all i expected yeah i went into this uh similarly uh in that I had no idea what to expect other than that Slim gave it his highest possible recommendation. And I thought it was going to be a S.H.I.E.L.D. story where Nick Fury just could say whatever he wanted. But to mm-hmm. get this experience out of it was just mind-blowing. I mean, the art is 
exquisite. There's no other word. Mm. Uh, every page is gorgeous, and there's no time wasted, no inch of the page wasted. Everything is done beautifully. The colors are staggering in the fact that they can set a mood instantly without even looking at the images on the page or the words or the dialogue. The mood is set by the colors, and how rare is it that I, on this podcast, even talk about the color, uh, colorist, and I have so much to say. That's how great the contribution is to this book. And I can honestly say I read this book Monday, Tuesday. I had to stay up Monday night to finish it. I was so hooked. And it's one of my top 10 favorite books of all time. It's wow. such a phenomenal yeah. work. I might agree with that. I think I might agree with that. Love it. How I, how about the the design work of Dave Johnson? Dave Johnson on the covers. <laughs> like each arc had a specific design motif that like if you're just scrolling through the covers, you can see that these are three issue arcs mm-hmm. and each one was different in that particular design set. Like I I mean his covers were amazing. Yeah, I was fascinated because it's not just 13 issues of a like the same principle only decorated differently to match the different arcs. It's like completely different design mechanisms for each arc with uh, and each of the arcs each of the issues inside one arc like share a common factor. Like the Cuban arc feature, you know, is for example, is the bottom half of each cover is like a is like a postcard from Cuba, from the fifties, and the uh, the the Vietnam arc is all features like a like a shadowy figure in uh, camo green color, and uh, like the Nicaraguan the, the, the arc. Bar- the Barracuda one was like the white double figure motif where like it's his undershirt it's like the the head and body of a person and i mean that that first indochina cover set was great too i love that one but yeah it was like an image set inside the silhouette of uh, mm-hmm. somebody oh man and not even that too like the next issue in those little teaser panels of like what happened in the next issue i thought those were genius i wish other books did that yeah, that's we've come back a lot and said that how what a great throwback that is, and it really does get you pumped. And the one that stands up my mind is the one when um, Fury and Castle are captured, and you and you're like, you know, you can't wait to flip to the next book. And the four scenes you get are like Castle's got a knife to somebody's throat, and then he's on a hill, you know, with the uh, the bold action open. And then Fury's talking to Gap, and you're like, what the F is going to happen? How are they going to get out of that? And that just, it's not a spoiler. It just creates excitement to go to the next issue. And uh, I'm sure if I was reading this monthly, that last page would have a lot of drawing power for me to keep coming back. The um, I was reading, I think, maybe the last five or six issues monthly. And I remember the, the teaser for issue 12, like the penultimate issue, was just next the final issue in caps like there was no preview or whatever and i was like oh no it's ending because <laughs> like waiting for this book to come out monthly was like you you just can't wait to see what happened next to these characters and it was just i mean highest recommendation possible for this book 
Yeah, it was a really empowering uh, letters page by Nick Lowe. It wasn't a letters page. It was just like him expressing his love for the book, and he's glad he got to spend time editing it. And he also mentioned that Ennis and Gorin are working on something else together. So I hope what? we... Yeah, in that page, really? he's like, uh, yeah, they're uh, they're exploring some options. They they might be mm-hmm. working together again soon. So hopefully that something great comes out of that. I mean, more Max stuff would be up my alley Dynamite. for sure. Dynamite. Maybe it's yeah. another Punisher book. Punisher. Punisher Ennis. Born 2. <laughs> Punisher Born Again. I'll oh, take it. Oh, God. Fury. Max. We got your letters I'm gonna open them up Farrington's gonna read them To you Rest in peace, Mark Letters at paperkeg.com You shoot us a letter, we might read it on the era No matter the length, Red Lantern <laughs> uh, our first letter comes to us from uh, a young gentleman known to us as Matt. And uh, he writes to us with the subject, furiously maxed out, but prideful about my planetary necking. I like this guy already. Lads, <laughs> I learned to read somewhat from the pages of DC's GI Combat, Our Army at War, and The House of Mystery. Marvel Street Heroes in the 1970s, Iron Fist, Power Man, Doctor Strange, Brother Voodoo, Daredevil, and others, great lineup there, were my best friends growing up in the 70s. I saw the correlations between mutants being hunted down and the specter of racial prejudice through the prism afforded by the X-Men. I read and collected through 1988, then stopped cold turkey. I skipped the 90s altogether. Missed the aughts, too. When my son was born in 2005, I was fortunate to live a couple blocks from Terminal Entertainment in Frankfurt, Germany. I stopped in and got hooked again. Brubaker's Iron Fist and Captain America. Nick Fury, Jeff Johns, Bendis. I got hooked again, but with more erudite tastes and predilections, and with an eye not so much to art, only but credible, compelling writing. That's why I have to say that as, professional, that as a professional journalist, a former foreign correspondent, and current scribbler about comics and the medium, your podcast is the blast of easygoing erudition and entertainment that is often lacking. I look forward to hearing the three of you opine about the crop of current books, but also those that have been bound and published in hardback or collective form. That your taste run parallel to mine is enjoyable. That you manage consistently to get me to look at other titles is admirable, though my wallet thinks otherwise. You should see Dale's Mortgage. The recent episodes on Pride of Baghdad, I did two reporting since there in 2003 and 2004, and Planetary Necking were superb. Keep up the great work always. If our if ever our paths cross, the beer is on me, as is the scotch. Matt, dad to two, reader of comics, listener of Paper Keg. And he is at Gorilla Scribe on the Twitter. I think that's, Dale just fell over. That's the best letter. That's the best letter ever. Can we say that now? It was a great, great uh, letter. I mean, you might you might infuriate uh, uh, Zola Fro. Jonesy is coming to the aid of his dear letter friend <laughs> immediately. He hasn't who even gives sent me a letter no, in. Who gives me zero support? Hopping, hopping to his defense immediately. <laughs> uh, Matt, that was the one of the kindest letters we've ever received. 
and uh, I won't make you buy me a 25-year-old Macallan scotch unless you like really wanted to. Then I would <laughs> allow it. I think he's in PA, too. Ooh, yeah, he's actually Jesse. in the... Uh, he's close to the Philadelphia area. I know that for... Uh, I know that, so maybe, you know, if we do a paper keg meetup... Look out. We're going to have to send... You, uh, Dale, you're on Facebook. You have to send one of those uh, Facebook invites that uh, people do. Oh, look out. He he is on fire. <laughs> Josie is on I'm fire. i start swinging my neck. <laughs> no, but that was a great, great uh, letter. I had that planetary episode... You know, think maybe in twenty years, when we're like Nick Fury and we're meeting up with Shirley DeFabio, mm-hmm. listening to that paper keg planetary episode that we did. Oh my god! Uh, next up is from uh, Andrew Myers. He's been written writing in recently. Thank you for that, Andrew. Hi, PK. I really liked when Slim described the origin of Doomsday on the last episode. Whatever Sounds much like my email. upbringing. <laughs> The uh, whatever I said got cut off. Jonesy talking. Sorry, so, sorry, sorry, Andrew. You guys have a way of delving into each book that makes me want to jump right in. Each ep deserves not only double but triple digit faves, in my humble opinion. Oh wow! Thank you, sir. How does Jonesy's washing machine keep up with all that sock laundry? I just started BJing today, and I've never felt better. <laughs> I recommend everyone become a BJer. <laughs> Uh, did you see my Magneto tweet from earlier this week? Anyone excited for the new X-Men movie? Thanks for sucking me into the PK Universe black hole. Signed, uh, Andrew Myers. Uh, that BJ line, Andrew. <laughs> BJ, BJing the hot and fresh new slang for the Book Jug <laughs> podcast. Turns out uh, it's a that, good thing that Dale for well-read hosts. people. <laughs> oh, God. You know, fresh over the wire, I don't want to... Break some news. 92% for Days of Future Pass on Rotten Tomatoes. Wow. Is that officially beating Avengers then? What is Avengers? Like 94? 92% Wow. Holy smokes. I I do have some inside information by Red Lantern, long letter writer for Paper Keg. He absolutely loved it. Really? He loved it. That's because he's from the future. It probably got released there two days ago. It did, in fact. He... uh, he is in Australia, and things get released like two days sooner Weeks. over there. So you know, like you know, it's going to be big when even my wife wants to go see it. When she wants to go see a comic book movie, I know it's gonna it's gonna ring the bell at the box office. Do they do that at the box office? They ring a bell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They actually do. It's like getting a big tip at a bar. They just have that little cowbell there that they ring. You know, is that like the Nasdaq? Right. Do we have to go in depth on that comment? Like the critique of that one comment? Did that really need to be aired out? Our dirty laundry on air. Next letter oh. uh, from uh, I, I must have called him like the Candyman uh, at Zola Fro. How about that Guardians of the Galaxy trailer? D. That movie looks great. Good. I look. I look at it as Marvel walking up to DC saying what and dropping the mic. DC has to knock it out of the solar system with bats versus soups. Are they going to fall too far behind to catch up? I agree. Excited to hear that Jerry Dugan is taking over Hulk. Interested to see his take on Banner at Zolafro. P.S. David Coyer needs to get one of those cards we talked about, guides. E-S-A-D. <laughs> the ESAD Nation. Ring inside the head. 
Yeah, he he's pretty unhappy with David Goyer. I read a headline, but not much more than that. He uh-huh. he he uh, talked about she hawk in a negative light and uh, made fun and of the in- geeks. The internet, I believe, uh, started a BJ itself. I think. Yeah, <laughs> he, they grew a huge a huge goiter. <laughs> huge. Okay. And they also grew. Sorry. Oh God. Hashtag hooch. (laughs) Good night, folks. Guardians of the Galaxy. I hope everyone enjoys it. Listen, uh, you know, fire, firefly for Marvel. Oh God. (laughs) Now I don't want to see it. I wanted to see it till you just said that. We're still I'm here, sure Joss. It'll be great. We're still flying. I hope it. I hope it makes a lot of money because that means we'll get more Marvel movies. That's true. But I just don't. I just don't have any desire to see it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Wow. Heard it here first. Spoilers. That movie episode. ambition spoilers. <laughs> I think Batman vs Superman is going to make insane amounts of money, and it doesn't even matter if it's going to be a good movie because oh, yeah, they're already going to start Justice League right after that. Yeah. You know, my father-in-law. Well, once the the news broke that I got that new subtitle, Dawn of Justice, my father-in-law, who hates using the phone, texts me to break the news to me that it was subtitled. That movie's going to make a ton of money. Oh my gosh. My father-in-law has no desire to go see a movie. He doesn't even have a phone. He, he, we don't even know how he texted Jones. Explain that he, one. He had to go get somebody's iPhone, somehow mask his contact information so I would get the text like it came from him. Just right. to just I the think, title, just the I title. I think he was on the hooch too. <laughs> he grew he might a hooch. Been the hooch a little. <laughs> a big what a show. Dale over there. <laughs> <laughs> Can't speak, idiot. I have been stammering this entire episode, and you're Jonesy one hasn't mistake. Said one. Jonesy hasn't said one right factoid about. <laughs> and listen, I Max haven't even had his description. <laughs> what are you talking about? I've been dead on, dead on my memory. What a show! Except what that Fury a- surprise murdered Elgin, the armless Elgin, <laughs> in a I in thought, a boat ninety miles. I thought from it was Fury waited until Elgin fell asleep <laughs> and then decided amongst himself <laughs> yeah. to murder him. I, how I, I swear that's how I remember then. that scene. You know, this is why people when, think I'm a snake, how long because ago, I can't remember how anything. How long ago did you read this book? Did you read this last Monday, week? Tuesday. Monday, Tuesday. It's only been two days. Oh, no, that's, that's, I, would, I, I wouldn't be able to read a book that far away and remember any of it. You know, I'm going to start taking up your tactic of reading it mere minutes before the show. That way everything's fresh in my mind. I'll tell you what, train ride, the train ride home, that's when you start and finish the book club. I'll have to take it, Unless you know, it's, the long train ride from Willowgrove to Hapro. <laughs> a five-minute train ride. Do we have any other letters? No, that's it. it. Okay. Thank you, letter writers. What a show. Longer than I thought it was going to be. I actually wasn't sure if we're going to fill up a whole show with it. And now we're 90 minutes. Oh, my God. I didn't even look till you just said that. It's going to be a short fireside. I'll tell you that much right now. A fire what? Because I might not be able to edit this thing. We uh, We just took that show length... And Mercy murdered it without it knowing. <laughs> but I described I mean, it wrong. So really, uh, it just fell asleep. The show life got tired. Right. And then and I came and put a bullet anyway. in its head. 
We'll see everybody next week. You are absolutely right. But Hatherly looks like Fury, but obviously no eye patch. So I'm a dummy. <laughs> the shark he looks like a it. human man. <laughs> Hatherly looks like a human man, which Fury also looks like. What a wow, show. That, that scene is much more emotional and powerful the way it's meant to be read. Let me tell you. Jonesy just moves on. Man, Fury just killed that guy in his sleep. Let's move on to issue, the next issue. <sighs> Good show. Great How show. about a Moon Knight creative team changing, <laughs> allegedly? After six lie. issues. Six issues. Dale like f- underscore your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, uh, not, I don't know. Any more... Warren Ellis is back in comics, but he's like the fixer. They bring him in, right some wrongs. What was he? What did he do? Like the uh, what was it? Secret Avengers. He did that six he did, issue. Stand, yeah, like or? six issues maybe. And uh, he hasn't even really written comics before Moon Knight for a long time. I don't think. Yeah, he was. That might have been his last Marvel work. Those mm-hmm. Secret Avenger books. Yeah, I think you might be right. Actually, he he took that break to write um, those books. Maybe that maybe they can only maybe they can only afford them for six issues. Now that I think about it, yeah, that's true. So they put them on something like Moon Knight. They know it's going to sell, uh, sell like Gangbusters, mm-hmm. Warren Ellis and Kooky Moon Knight. Oh my! Now he's got that Heavens. big uh, image project coming out. So oh, I just dropped something. What's on that? My desk. Sorry. What image <laughs> project? It's called Trees, I think, with uh, Jason Howard of the Amazing Wolfman. Mm-hmm. And some other things. Super Dinosaur. Is that Jason Howard? I don't know. How about uh, anybody else reading The Invincible that came out this week? No. Is anybody else caught up at all? Uh, the last Invincible I read was when he got hard hard by that vitramite. Mm. Mm. Was there a big follow-up to that? Should I be reading it right now? Um, you can if you want. I'm not going to pressure you into it. I mean, I, I'm not navigating to our show Captain sponsor. America was great. Yeah, that was came great. came out two weeks ago, though. There you have it. Ghost Rider number three was pretty good. Yeah. Daredevil was exquisite, as always. Of course. Did I miss Invincible coming up this week? Issue 111. It was when they were kind of jokey, saying how Robert Kirkman was the new writer from The Walking Dead. <laughs> kind of funny promotion. Uh, you know what title I should really start reading? It is Exo Man of War. <laughs>